I'm sure you all have seen those huge inflatable ornaments that people put on their lawns at Christmas time. Maybe you own, own one yourself, an enormous Santa or a huge snowman. Well, snow person, I guess you should say snow person. It kind of loses something in the, the imagery translation. But anyway, when they are deflated and lying on the ground, they, still what they, they are still what they are, a Santa or a snow person. But when you slowly add the air and they begin to fill up, you can see more fully what they are. Now I've got to apologize to you for the way my brain works. It's just what it is. But the, 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 the more I work on these sermons, as I keep thinking about the Lord's Supper, it, it keeps getting bigger and bigger in, in my mind. Jesus himself describes the Spirit of God uh, as the wind. And I feel like as I study and prepare for the Lord's Supper, that the Spirit of God keeps inflating the Lord's Supper before my eyes until it becomes bigger and bigger and more important and more important. And I hope the same is true for you in your life, that the Lord is filling it up so that we can see more of what it is. Now, don't get me wrong. The Lord's Supper is what it is, just as the deflated ornament is what it is, whether it has air in it or not. Our understanding of the Lord's Supper doesn't change the reality of what it is. But how blessed we are. How blessed we are when the Word of God and the Spirit of God join to, to fill it up for us, to inflate it before our eyes so that we can see at the Lord's table more and more of what the Lord has for us in it as a means of grace that takes us to the person of Jesus Christ. The table of the Lord has a present value for you and for me right now. And the more we study it, the more we see the value of it. And the more we see the value of it, the more you and I should long for the table of the Lord. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return again to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the, the present value uh, of the supper of the Lord. So if you'll take your Bibles, if you have one, and turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. But when you found your place in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. This is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. What a rich verse this is for us as we look at it in such depth, as we see through it how you grace our lives and how you take us to Jesus through these ordinary means of your word and prayer and through the Lord's Supper. Father, as we continue to ponder and contemplate the depth of your realities and try to understand uh, more clearly your mysteries. We pray that you would uh, bless us. 
Father, that your table would grow even bigger before our eyes and that we would long for it more and more. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Well, in our our many, many weeks of looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as we've studied the means of grace in general, and particularly in these last weeks as we have talked about the Lord's Supper, let's not lose sight of the fact that the early church was devoted to celebrating the table of the Lord. Acts chapter 20 gives us a very interesting historical tidbit about worship and how the Lord's Supper was so important to the early church. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So, first thing, if you get out of here at 11.15, I'm just saying A.M., I mean, 11.15 a.m. Look, this is so interesting in this verse. Did you hear that? The church was meeting together on the first day of the week just so they could come around the table of the Lord. They were gathering for worship to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to it. Why? Because the Lord's Supper had present value to them. Again, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the present value of the Lord's Supper. Last week, I mentioned that the Lord's Supper takes us in three directions. It takes us to the past, it brings us to the present, and it takes us to the future. Last week, we went to the past because we heard Jesus' words when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, remember me. And so it feels a little bit wrong to me to move so quickly from the past because there's so much more of Jesus to see even in the Old Testament, such as his eternal existence before the creation of the world. How Jesus was in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God. His appearances as Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, or as the commander the army of the Lord, or as the fourth man that appeared in that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the one who delivered them so that the hairs of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Listen, these sights, had we time to look at them in depth, give us richer, fuller meaning to the me that Jesus says that we should remember. And so my goal last week was to completely overwhelm us with the magnitude of the me, so that when we come to the table, we know that we are privileged to come, called to come, welcome to come by an infinite Jesus, whose culminating act of love and obedience on the cross resulted from planning for that cross moment, preparing for that cross moment before the foundation of the earth so that when that moment came in time and space, 
Jesus would able, be able to do what he longed to do, what he planned to do, which is to redeem, restore, and rescue us. Is that good news? None of it should be forgotten. Remember me, says Jesus. Remember the magnitude of me. Of course, when we remember Jesus, whenever we think of him, there's present value for us. But that value only increases when the memory brings us to the tangible elements, when we actually eat and drink the bread and the cup. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, as he is pouring a glass of Passover wine, he says to his disciples, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Is the new covenant in my blood. So here we are in the present tense. Here we are at what is true right now. The wine is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to talk about this idea of the covenant. Because we have to understand what a covenant is, so that we can comprehend all that Jesus is communicating to us through the bread and through the cup. When we do comprehend it, as much as is possible, for human beings to comprehend the inscrutable mysteries of God, but the more we comprehend, the more and more reason will have to be devoted to the table of the Lord. So, you ready? Here we go. Covenants. On a basic level, a very simple level, a covenant is simply a promise. A covenant is a promise. But we need to fill out that idea of promise just a little. In his book entitled The Lord's Supper as the Sign and Meal of the New Covenant, Guy Waters condenses the idea of covenant into three characteristics that I think are very helpful for us when we're trying to think through what covenant is. So we're going to go over those three characteristics. Here's the first characteristic of a covenant. It assumes an existing relationship between two parties. It assumes an existing relationship between two parties. In other words, a covenant in the Bible does not create a relationship. Instead, a covenant formalizes a relationship that's already in place. And in Scripture, it's a relationship that's always initiated by God, by His choice, and by His unmerited favor. Second characteristic, a covenant involves life and death issues. A covenant does not traffic in the trivial details of life, life and death issues. Thirdly, a covenant brings Thirdly, God brings the covenants to his people. People do not bring their covenant proposals to God. As Waters writes, people never negotiate or haggle with God over these terms. No, in a covenant, God sets the terms and places them on people. Additionally, a sign accompanies 
God's covenants or promises so that people might remember them. The Garden of Eden had a tree of life. There it was, a sign to seal, to authenticate, to make certain God's promise of life to Adam and Eve forever life if they walked in perfect obedience before him. God entered a covenant with Noah. He said, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall, be, shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And that promise to preserve life had a sign and a seal attached to it. The sign was the rainbow. God entered into a covenant with Abraham. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And that covenant had a sign to seal it as well, the sign of circumcision. God entered a covenant with Moses there at the top of the mountain. The finger of God wrote those Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone, a sign of the covenant of God's promises. You will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. I will fight for you. I will forgive your sins. Those stone tablets were signs and seals of God's promises. As we see God initiated, all of these relationships, Adam and Eve, he created them, right? Adam from the dust of the earth, Eve from the rib of Adam. He called Noah to preach. He called Moses to deliver. He called Abraham. Abraham did not call him. Life and death were involved in each one, and God set the terms in each. So in addition to God's promises, covenants always come with obligation. For you and for me, for all people of all time, to receive the good promises of God, the life promises of God. Those who enter into covenant relationship with Him are required to live by faith, to trust in the Lord, and to live in obedience to Him with the desire to serve God, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength because God is so good and he's so good to enter into a covenant relationship with us John Piper writes that our living up to these conditions of obedience he says it's like saying that the condition you must meet in order to benefit from your vacation is to enjoy the sunsets not difficult to enjoy the sunset is it it's so beautiful it's not a burdensome thing for us to love and trust and obey and serve such a God as we have. But notice I said desire, that we desire to love and serve God. God does not break his promises just because people sin, just because people don't love or serve him. Where would we be? If God broke his promises because of our unfaithfulness, all would have been lost with Adam. All. 
when he broke that covenant with God, when he ate the forbidden fruit, or Noah and his shamelessly exposed, naked drunkenness that resulted in cursing his own grandson because of his own son's sin, or Abraham and his deceitfulness and manipulations, or Moses and his pride and his impetuosity and the rebellion of the people. All of these were in covenant with God. They were not sinless, but they had a heart to love and serve God and to follow Him faithfully. Obedience is our response to the promises of God. It's the way we experience and enjoy the blessings that God promises to us. And here's here's the good news. God doesn't abandon us in our obedience. He doesn't leave us alone in it. He aids us in it. He gives us what we need to obey Him. Would you take your bulletin and open it again to that first page? I want to read out loud that quote that we use to prepare our hearts to worship from this wonderful Puritan. God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, He requires no more than He gives But he gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. Is that not unbelievable? The Lord knows we have nothing. So he he gives us. He requires no more than he gives. He gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. The bread, the wine, the body, the blood, they are the signs of God's new covenant, signs of the promises of God. And look. All the characteristics of a covenant are here. First, a relationship between two parties that God initiated by His choice and by His unmerited favor. You and the Lord. Me and the Lord. By His initiation. Secondly, it involves life and death issues. Christ's death so that you and I might live. Thirdly, God brings the covenants to his people. People do not bring their proposals to God. Jesus says, the covenant is in my blood. This is the covenant that Christ makes with us, that he signs, that he seals with his blood. At the Lord's table, God seals us. David Mathis writes in The Habits of Grace, These ordinances, the Lord's Supper, not just a sign, but seals. They confirm to us not just that God has done something salvific for mankind in general, but that His saving grace has come to me in particular. When a Bible-believing church offers the seal to me, it can be a great grounds of assurance that I myself am included in these rescued people of Christ. We are sealed. Is that good news? You know how it worked in Scripture. The signet ring of the king, and the king took that ring and he pressed it into the hot wax that was sealing the document. And when he used that ring and put the image there in the wax, it sealed it, it proved the document belonged to him, and the document contained his will. 
in the Lord's Supper. The Lord seals us. He assures us that we are his, that we belong to him, and it is his will to make us his own. Or, as the Song of Solomon chapter 2 says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Or, Christ is mine forevermore. John Calvin writes, that a sacrament is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promise of his good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith and we in turn show our piety toward him. My beloved is mine, I am his. Christ is mine forevermore. It's not your faith that seals you. But by faith, when you come to the table of the Lord, you are reminded that you are sealed by God. It's his will to seal you. Is that good news? Come on. John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. God the Father has set his seal on Jesus the Son. If this were not true, nothing else would matter, would it? If Jesus were not sent from God, if he were not himself God in the flesh, none of this would matter. We would have no covenant. We would have no hope. We would have no life. But God set his seal on Jesus so that you and I would know Jesus is my answer to your hopelessness. Jesus is my answer to your sinfulness. Jesus is my answer to your decaying and to your death. Outwardly, you are wasting away. But inwardly, Because I set my seal on Jesus, he is renewing you day by day. Is that good news? And because of that, all the rest is true. So I'm going to close with these beautiful verses of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I am sealed, marked, claimed. My beloved is mine. I am his. Christ is mine forevermore. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I am sealed, marked, claimed. So are you. My beloved is mine. I am his. Christ is mine forevermore. One more. 2 Timothy chapter 2. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. We are sealed marked, claimed by God, my beloved is mine and I am his, Christ is mine forevermore.
the table seals to you and me what God has promised to us right now in this moment. It's no wonder the early church was devoted to it. So for whatever else might be true in your life right now, in this moment, whether that truth be good or not so good, still, in this present moment, you belong to God through Christ. You're sealed. Christ is yours, no matter what. I am sealed. Christ is mine, no matter what. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Christ is mine forevermore. Is that good news? Let's pray. Father, thank you for yet another look at your table. Thank you, Lord, that it seals to us your promise to us. Promises that you have made through Jesus, that you fulfill in Jesus, that we are yours forevermore. In this life, Lord, marked by you, sealed by you, given your spirit, we thank you. We praise you for your love for us, for initiating this relationship with us, for giving your life for us. Lord, help us now by the power of your spirit to live lives of obedience, grateful obedience before you because we have a God such as you are, a God who loves us so much that you enter into covenant with us. Bless us in our obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.